chapter 7, the book of Joshua, chapter 7, Jericho, the mighty city, has fallen at the shout of God's people. The conquest of Canaan has begun with a victory so great, so decisive and conclusive that surely from here on out, Israel will never have reason to question the sufficiency of God ever again. But in more ways than one, beloved, what is apparent is not always the truth. Now, given the way we usually, maybe even um, naturally read the Bible, we get about five verses deep here in this chapter and think we have it figured out because it's just so obvious, right? After their great victory at Jericho, which, remember, was God's great victory at Jericho, Israel is instantaneously tonight defeated in their very next battle by little insignificant I. We wouldn't even know it existed probably if it wasn't for this story. The reason for Israel's defeat, so we think, is that they either move too fast without seeking the Lord's uh, guidance for the next step, or maybe they were overconfident. Maybe it was a combination of both. And so the apparent lesson or application of this text usually probably goes something like this. Don't move too fast in your life. When you have big decisions on the horizon, don't make decisions without seeking the Lord first and seeking His will first. Don't get ahead of God, you might hear. You might suffer a defeat or a setback like Israel did at I. The Lord won't be with you if you get ahead of Him. Or maybe something like um, stay humble. Don't get overconfident in life, especially if you haven't found God's will first. These phrases we like to use, even though they aren't really biblical at all. And to be certain, there is wisdom in in parts of those exhortations. But are these the reasons the text gives for why Israel was defeated at I? Because if the text reveals a different reason for Israel's defeat than the ones I've mentioned, not only does that have to shape our conclusions about the passage itself, but also how we ought to apply or do the word, so to speak, of Joshua 7. If Jesus Christ is not our propitiation, the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for us, and our righteousness, we will only ever remain under the wrath of Almighty God. The church without Christ is doomed. But the church with Christ is forgiven, righteous, militant, triumphant, safe, and secure forever. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Our Father, Lord God, blessed be Your holy name in this place tonight among these Your people. God, we thank You for Your Word. We love Your Word. Lord, would You teach us this night? Lord, would You take control of me that Christ crucified might be proclaimed even in this passage, God, for the sake of Your people and for the sake of Your great name. We ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and read, actually, I know it's 26 verses, but I'm going to read the whole passage in one shot here. I I think if we hear it in one shot, it might help us make more sense of it. So 
Joshua chapter 7 verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to them, and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men, and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. We're only seven chapters in. The book starts with the hearts of the Canaanites melting at the presence of the Israelites in their land. And now, already, after their first great victory, Israel's hearts are melting. They are afraid. Verse 6, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before their ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. Remember that line. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. From among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has. Because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord. And because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken. Joshua is obedient to the Lord time and time again. And he brought near the clans of Judah and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man and Achan the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to Him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Remember, 
those things will cost this man and his entire families their life. A nice coat and some shiny money. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. So like I've said before, first of all, when you're dealing with narratives, like narrative history versus epistles, Epistles are much easier to track the point in because you have these arguments that are being made. And so you can kind of look at words like for and therefore and since and kind of, okay, I understand what he's saying and build a case. In narratives, you're basically getting a historical record, a story. And so what would God have you and I take from this? What do we need to see? And one of the ways that we understand narratives the best is to note the structure, right? Narratives tell their meaning to us or what we're meant to get out of it, mainly by the structure. The structure is extremely important here. Did you notice, I know they're 26 verses apart, but the wrath of God bookends Joshua chapter 7. It's there at the beginning. It's there at the end. In verse 1, the wrath of God was burning. Right? He's angry. There has been disaster for Israel with their defeat in verses 2 through 5. There's confusion for the leaders of Israel in verses 6 through 9. Then comes God's divine revelation of the problem in verses 10 through the first part of verse 12. That brings us to the midpoint of the passage, really, in the second part of verse 12. Let me read that again to you. I'll read verse 12. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Okay, that's what's at issue here. Then... Uh, God gives His divine instruction to solve this problem in verses 13 to 15. Next, the issue is exposed. The um, guilty is exposed and clarified for Israel before God in verses 16 to 23. And this brings disaster for this man named Achan and his whole family by execution in verses 24 to the first part of 26. And then lastly, it closes in the second part of 26 as this burning wrath of God, God turns from that wrath in verse 26 that was burning in verse 1. Now, that's a very neat kind of way to break it up. I don't know that the author wrote with that structure on purpose for us to find this neat little scheme, but I do think um, it reveals the meaning of the passage. It reveals the point, why are we getting this story? Why are we hearing this? This text is primarily about the wrath of God burning against the guilty and then being turned away. His wrath, beloved God's wrath, 
is the reason Israel is defeated. And that wrath is turned away when God removes the guilt from them by pouring out His wrath on the guilty. Initially, I think we usually take verses 2-5 through as proof that the reason Israel was defeated was because of this overconfidence they had. And the neglect of prayer, maybe. They didn't prepare, but that's why they were defeated. They broke faith by making those mistakes. Then there are other commentators who actually say the opposite, that Joshua's immediate push into I was very wise and showed his faith, that he took the Lord at his word, that, look, I've given you the land, so get moving. And Joshua says, what's next? Right? So you can read different sides of it, different things into it. It could go either way, depending on the point you want to make. But since wrath is there in verse 1 and in verse 26, we really need to see verses 2 through 5 in light of verse 1. God's wrath against a man named Achan is why Israel was defeated at Ai. That's why. They didn't move too fast. We don't know that from the text. God's not angry with them for not praying. We don't know that from the text. What we do know is that there's a man in the camp who sinned and God is angry with him before they ever go to Ai. And they need to know that God is angry with them, that God has found out their sin. That's why they're defeated at I. Because of what God wants to show them, and I would say wants to show us. Show us. His wrath is already on them when Joshua correctly assumes, I believe, that they are to keep going into the land, and I is just next on the list. The Lord told them, again, I've given you the land. Go. Of course Joshua believes they should advance. This is faith right here. That means taking the land means the conquest of every city and people that is in their way. But they aren't going to win regardless of whether they pray. Regardless of how fast or slow they move here. Why? Because God's wrath already rests on them in verse 1. In the beginning of the text, He's already angry. They failed because of God's anger. If they were overconfident in any way, it was because God was leading them to move out of His wrath. John Calvin writes this about this section. When the 3,000 or thereabouts were repulsed, it was only a just recompense for their confidence and sloth. He's saying that's what some people say. The Holy Spirit, however, declares the fewness of numbers was not the cause of the discomfiture. So, you know, they're so arrogant they only sent 3,000 but the men up there. So, but that's not what the Bible says is the reason for God's wrath or that they were defeated. The fewness of numbers was not the cause of the discomfiture and ought not to bear the blame of it. The true case was the secret counsel of God who meant to show a sign of His anger but allowed the number to be small in order that the loss might be less serious. The text teaches that God's people failed because they're under God's wrath. All of them. All of them. The whole camp, the whole nation is under God's wrath because of Achan's sin. What are we to make of this, you and I? Your hour? Because you, you, you could push here, right? Do our failures and disasters that we're experiencing in life sometimes, does that mean we're under God's wrath? And we need to figure out what we've done wrong? And we just don't know we're under God's wrath yet? I read one commentary that said, um, I, I, I strongly disagree with this, but the gentleman said that does the church really think it can uh, exist and not be under God's wrath? 
Is that why things aren't working out for us in our lives? Because we're under God's wrath and we don't know it. We don't realize that we've made a mistake or sinned in some way. And so, well, I would say here at the outset, has anything happened between I and Moundsville in 2023 that has addressed the issue of God's wrath for the world? Anything that's happened in between. We'll come back to that. In verses 6-9, through we can understand why Joshua is so confused under God's wrath. This was completely unexpected. They had believed the promise. They had won a great first victory. A decisive one at Jericho. A conquest shaping one at Jericho. Joshua is very bold here, but we have to remember, Joshua doesn't have the information that the reader does in verse 1. God hasn't revealed that yet. Joshua is just doing what he is supposed to do as Israel's leader. He doesn't know that God's wrath is burning against Israel at this point. Because somebody's done what God forbade them to do in Joshua 6. His complaint in verse 7 here. This this isn't like Israel. It sounds the same. It isn't like Israel complaining in Numbers Complaining to God is very different than complaining about God, which is what Israel was doing in Numbers. Joshua is saying, Lord, what has happened here? We were doing what you wanted us to do. You told us to take the land. We, we, if, if, if you brought us out here to lose the second battle that we're in, the Canaanites are going to mock you. They're going to mock us. What will you do for your great name? That's the heart of Joshua's complaint. That's the heart of his burden. Lord, you're going to look terrible if, if we if you just if we lose against little tiny eye. Before we move on, though, we ought to take a moment to think about the objects of God's wrath here, because I think this is where the meat of the text really is. Israel is punished at eye for the sins of one man. That's why they lose. When that one man is found out, and now we know who did it, it's not just him that is judged for it. It's his whole family. That man stood in the place of his whole family. And he was a sinner with no mediator. And he and his family are killed by the wrath of God carried out through Israel. And we're learning something very important here about the wrath of God in Israel. If God calls a people His own and God means to save them, they are seen, as it pertains to judgment, as one group, as a whole. We don't have evidence in Scripture that anybody else took anything from Jericho. The whole nation, however, is defeated by this little tiny people because one man did. And yet the Bible says Israel broke faith. The people broke faith. They did this. They took the devoted things. God is telling, He sees them as a group. They rise as a group. They fall as a group. And by doing so, God is not being unfair or unjust. And this is what our minds will do. Like, how could God do this? Is, his, really, his whole family, they didn't do anything. Beloved, that's our predicament. 
That's our predicament. God is showing the world here through Israel. This was, remember, we learned this morning in Romans 15, what we already knew. This is written for our instruction, beloved. God is showing the world through this Israel, or through Israel, and even this episode with Achan, that humanity as a group will either bear the punishment of Adam as a race, or someone, for that not to happen, now we realize, okay, so you're all considered guilty for the sins of one, so what Adam did, now all humanity is under this curse. All of us, we will either bear the punishment of Adam as a race because we are his descendants, we're part of his family, or somebody will have to step in, be perfect, and as that perfect sacrifice, bear all the wrath of God towards the whole group in our place so that the salvation is given to everybody in place of the punishment that we deserved because our forefather Adam fell. Humanity died in Adam. We all died that day. God's wrath extends to the whole group now. The whole race of humanity. The defeat of Israel and the judgment of Achan and his family shows us that without an obedient representative for humanity, all we will get from God is His wrath. Notice in verse 1, it says that the people of Israel broke faith. Again, we come back to that. In one man named Achan. The people broke faith. It sounds like Achan broke faith. No. It's the group. One tribe. One nation created by God. That's how God sees humanity. One man brought God's wrath on a whole nation. And even when the truth of the matter was found out and the nation was spared, that man's whole family was not. Now again... We can think God is unfair. I, I don't know the easy answer to that. I will tell you this. It doesn't matter if you think God is unfair. You are guilty before God for your sin. You don't get to tell the judge that he's not allowed to say you're guilty. One man brought God's wrath on a whole nation. And even when the truth of the matter was found out, the nation was spared. The man's whole family wasn't. There's a reality in this text we can't avoid. It's corporate solidarity and sin and judgment in terms of the whole tribe. Achan is a reminder of the trouble we are all in because of Adam. This is what it's like for humanity. If all there is between us and God is what we got from Adam. If all there is between us and God is God's justice and what we do or don't do, this will be the result every time. We are all guilty. We are all deserving of wrath because the first human infected all humans with the sin for which he was cast out of God's presence. God originally told him, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So the fact that Adam and Eve aren't killed the day they eat of it is God's mercy. Because that's what they deserved. Achan doesn't get that. Because God is showing Israel, His people, and He's showing us for our instruction, this is the way it is. If it's me and you and my wrath and your sin, this is the way it is. 
you have no chance, none, to disobey me once is to be guilty of eternal damnation. How can God do that? How? He does it. He is the truth. That's the way it is. We, we can complain all day. Don't, don't complain. God's not sitting in the dock taking questions about whether or not He's just. He's just. That's what justice is. That's what it looks like. That's what it demands. That's what it does. We are second. We are created. We have no idea what justice is. God is justice. The hinge of this whole text there in verse 12. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Israel now as an entire nation, because there's a little bit of sin, there's a cloak and some gold and some silver in one guy's tent. If you don't purge that evil from among you, I'm going to wipe out the entire nation. I will not be with you anymore. You are on your own. Kindling is what Israel is and what the world is if the sin is left unaddressed. If the sin in the camp is allowed to remain in the camp, the camp is kindling. Humanity is kindling before God's wrath if sin is left unaddressed. If it's all up to us to to just hope we don't steal some loot. Just a little bit. Like, really? You'll turn just because of this? Yeah, because I said not to take anything. It's, it's not, God is not petty. We as created beings have no idea what sin really is. How offensive even the smallest thing is to the holiness of God. We don't grasp it. We don't, to us it seems small, but we, we aren't God. There must be destructive, comprehensive judgment if the presence of God for Israel is to be retained. That's what it will take actually for there to be peace between humanity and God. There will have to be comprehensive judgment somewhere. Somebody will have to pay the price of sin somewhere. And then at this moment we see the heart of God. Remember, wrath is not who God is by nature. Wrath is God's response, His holy response to sin. It's not God losing His temper and like He has a short fuse. Wrath exists because sin exists in God's providence. And here there is mercy here. In verses 10-15, through 15, God reveals the one who committed the sin that brought the whole nation under God's wrath. God wants to restore Israel to His favor or He wouldn't be telling them this. You see that. You see His heart here. My goal is to be with you in Canaan, not to remove myself from you. That's the heart of God for His people, Israel. So He makes known where the issue is. He reveals the sinner so that there might be restoration after His wrath has addressed the issue. The devoted things that were taken. And we see the awful severity of it in verses 16-26. through 26. Right. So, so again, it, it, you have the, the difficult conquest of Canaan to understand. Like, they're wiping out entire people groups here. 
but not because they're not Jewish. Don't miss that. God will do to sin in Israel what He's going to do to sin in Canaan. Achan was a Hebrew. His family were Hebrews. The severity is confusing to us, but really this is why we should be reverent before God. It wasn't a small thing to him for Achan to disregard his clear word. right? When you're a parent, it, it, when, when you make a rule, right? it doesn't matter if your kids don't get it. Or, 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 or like you don't have to, to, as they get older, of course, things change. And you have conversations and all that. I totally understand that. But when you're three and I tell you not to touch the stove, it's, it's not a discussion. It's not a debate. I don't, you don't need to understand. You need to do what I say because you're going to burn your hand if you don't. Right? So it, it's, it's don't, don't take from God what we very naturally do as parents because we have authority and we care about our children. Right? We love them. So sometimes we are severe with them. Not to hurt them, but because we love them. If I, if I don't tell my children that that hot stove will burn their hand, I'm not a very kind parent, actually. And if there isn't some type of punishment for them clearly disobeying even a tiny rule like don't touch the stove, then they're going to touch the stove. Right? And, and I, I, I don't want my kids to get burned. I don't, it's very hard when you're a kid to understand why, I, why did I get in trouble there? Why did I get a spanking or why did I get grounded or, or whatever it is? It's very hard when you're a kid to realize, well, that's because mom and daddy love me and they don't want me to get hurt. You just want your freedom because we're little sinners by nature from the womb out. Right? You, I use this example all the time. You've probably tried to put an outfit or a coat on a toddler. You talk about rebellion. They can contort their body like a circus performer. Right? I don't want my coat on right now. Well, it's cold, little baby. And I'm stronger than you, so we're putting this coat on. It was, a, it was not a small thing for Achan to disregard God's clear word. It doesn't matter how much he actually took. No more than it was no big deal for Adam and Eve to break faith with one piece of fruit in the garden. God's word is God's word. God's wrath seems so severe and overblown to us again because we have no idea how awful it is to sin against the holy God. What happens to Achan and his family here? Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy on us for being so foolish and arrogant. This is God's wrath against sin. This is what it looks like if you want to know. If there's no mediator taking away the guilt, this is all of us one day in Joshua 7. Every single last one of us. It doesn't matter how much we've done right if we've done one tiny bit of wrong. This is the holiness of God we're seeing in Joshua 7. This is the holiness of God against sin. The man's whole family paid the price here. And so will we for Adam's sin which we've taken on as our own with both hands, filled with glee to do what we want and take what we want from God. Like the worship He says is His and we worship other gods anyway. 
there's another heap of stones made here in Joshua at the end of chapter 7. But this time it's to remember that God's wrath burns against rebellion and don't forget it. Israel, he says. Lest we make the same error that Achan did so that he could just have a little bit extra for himself. You can imagine him going through that in his mind. Well, this isn't that much. I'm sure it's not a big deal. It's God that decided it was a big deal. Worry about you and God. Don't don't try to parse out whether or not sin is a big deal. If God has forbidden it, it's a big deal. Throughout Israel's history, we know this by now, there are monuments to God's saving help. They just made one in chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. And now to God's burning, destroying wrath is a monument. The wise one will pay heed to both. But, really, who is that wise? Everybody in here probably knows the holiness of God and His wrath against sin. Does it keep you from sin? Does the fact that Achan and his whole family, does the fact that we're all guilty in Adam, does it make you stop sinning to hear God's law over you? No. No one is as wise and as good and as obedient as God requires. Nobody. And you say, well, I do my best. It's not good enough. It's not good enough. He doesn't grade on a curve. It's wrath. Or it's God has made provision some other way. We usually think about God's wrath as something that pertains to other people, to the really bad people. The worst of us. And you can see in society that, my goodness, they're they're just begging for God's wrath and they don't even see it. And Not that we say that judgmentally or self-righteously. It's just like you can only mock God for so long, so blatantly and so foul as as is in our culture now. God will only put up with that for so long. So that's easy to see. Wrath against things like, I'll just keep a little bit for myself. He probably was going to use that money for his family. The wrath of God is no small thing. This is what we're like before it if we stand on our own. Make no mistake, we're aching. So the first thing that has to happen to us is that the law, the just demand of God that is holy and righteous and good would expose us for the aching that we all are. That's the first function of a story like this. Is to say, this is God in wrath against sin. Even the seemingly smallest of things. He required this Achan didn't do it. Achan and his entire family are killed for it. You do realize God could do that every day if He wanted to. We would have never made it to 2023. So let us dispel any notion that we could ever stand before God on our own. Did Achan really think Did it it really get into his mind that if if he didn't do this, if he didn't take some of the spoils of Jericho for himself, Achan had heard God's promise. Did he really think, well, yeah, but it might not. Maybe he won't do it. Maybe he won't. uh, You know, I, I need to procure a little bit for myself. I need to get a little bit for myself. Maybe God won't bless me, not little old Achan, from 
the tribe of, you know, the clan of the Zarahites. God doesn't even know my name. He doesn't see me. The promise isn't for me. What did God promise to Israel? To men and women like Achan and his whole family. It was all theirs. The promised land. Milk and honey. Peace and joy forever. Why are a few shiny things enough to undo all that? Why indeed, beloved? A few shiny things. A few shiny moments. Why are they enough to make us doubt God's promise? My goodness, how badly do we need a Savior? This is what we are. We cannot bring ourselves to trust what God has promised us is better than what we might be able to procure for ourselves. We can't. We love our own desires and what we set them on way too much. And if all that stands between us and the wrath of a holy God is our own ability to do what He says, we're done. We'll pull an Aiken every time. If you were to bank on your good works and use them as the means of God's approval, understand you would be burned with fire and stoned to death at the first offense. If you say, I I reject the grace of God in Jesus Christ, I would like to see if I can pay my own way. You're going to last about a second. Because not only are our works not good enough, we're inherently evil. We do not want works to be the currency that buys our salvation. None of us wants it that way. The fact that He admitted what He did, it accomplished nothing. So what? Yeah, you're found out now. What are you going to do? Well, somebody, it wasn't me. Somebody put that in my tent. They, they, Israel had done that since the beginning. You made a golden calf? Not really. I mean, we put all this fire, all this gold in the fire, and this calf popped out. We just started, people started worshiping it, so, you know, went in Rome. He had, what's, what is he going to do? Right? The scripture talks about be sure that your sin will find you out. You already, it already has. Right? It, it, we, we cannot atone for our own sins. Do you see that here? So what if Achan admitted that he did in fact do it? Where's his covering coming from? Do you see that? If, if there's not a covering, what difference does it make if you were honest about how wicked you are? Without a covering, There's no hope. There's nothing to absorb the wrath that you deserve. That's how it works without a mediator. Our works are worth nothing. Our good intentions, our honesty, our genuine heart, they're worth nothing. They're dirty. How could He deny it, right? Mercy comes for the repentant, not someone who banks on coming clean as the means of salvation. You want to know what the world in eternity would look like if salvation was up to us? Even just to the extent that we not disobey just one little command, there is a place like that. There is a place to go that you could find out what a world like that would look like. It's called the Valley of Acorn. And you know what's there. There's wrath there. And a pile of rocks over a man and his family who broke faith with the promising God. That's what it would look like. 
But here's the thing. God did do something. God sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God sent His own Son. And in Hosea, years later, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, God promised that because one was going to come who would obey, because one was going to come who would not be enticed even by the kingdoms of the whole world, much less a few pieces of gold from a ruined city, God sent His Son to be born of a woman, born of the flesh, who could stand in our place in the great valley of Achor, where it would be decided for all eternity whether we would stand on our own before God with nothing but our best efforts, or stand before God in His Son, not just forgiven, but righteous forever. God didn't avoid the punishment of the valley of Achor. That's the thing. He went there Himself in Christ and paid the price for the whole group, the whole tribe, sinful humanity, the whole race, every single one of us. And there in Christ, what does He do? Hosea says He will allure us and love us back to Himself. The valley of Achor became a door of hope for everyone forever. And now we don't look at a heap of stones to remember that God might kill us. When we realize we've sinned and abide under God's judgment, we find ourselves in Christ who is a new Adam, a new Achan for us. You and I look at one stone that was rolled away at which God raised that obedient Son to be our justification. And that's the Gospel for all who will receive it. Achan or not. Beloved, sometimes we will be overconfident. Sometimes we won't pray as we should. Sometimes we'll forget to submit ourselves to Him. Sometimes we'll remember that we should and not submit ourselves to Him anyway. But you need to know something. The wrath of God has been exhausted for you in Christ. It is no more. God is angry with His children who have received His Gospel. No more. The wrath that justly burned against you has been absorbed for you by Christ. He was literally punished for you. He was stoned. He was destroyed and murdered for sins he didn't commit, just like Achan's family, and became our Savior. And he never will be angry with you again because Christ is sufficient for you. We are not now, nor ever will be again under God's wrath. Don't let anybody tell you, Christian, that if you mess up, God's going to get you. Don't listen to it. Rebuke it in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus absorbed God's wrath that justly burned against me. He didn't cast it off like I hadn't sinned. Jesus went to the valley of Achor and got stoned and burned for me. A sinner. And for the whole group, so that now God's people will most assuredly enter the true promised land. We don't live as Christians by fear from cautionary tales about what not to do. God is not wagging His finger at us like we're rotten little children. Warning us that if we step out of line, He's going to have to go get the switch. No. 
God had a big switch. And the back of Jesus is where you can see what it did. He literally covered me to be beaten for me because I'm a sinner. All the just wrath of God was poured out once and for all on Christ for you, believer, for you. We lived in the Valley of Acor, no question. And then God moved in right next door and now we call that very same place, this earth where I've blown it a million times, the door of hope. That's where we live, believer. Jesus made the very place of God's wrath, our guilty hearts, the very place of God's forgiveness and salvation. Such is our God. Be at peace. We are His now. And our covenant head, our representative, the one in whom it is determined how God will deal with us, He's without sin. And you get treated like He does. Every single one who receives the Gospel. God treats you like He treats His Son. The only sin Jesus ever had was ours. And it's been dealt with. So today we die, but tomorrow we live. If Jesus is not our propitiation and our righteousness, we will only ever remain under the wrath of Almighty God. The church without Christ, we're just a bunch of hopeless losers, Paul says. The most pitiable people on the earth if Christ hasn't risen from the dead. But the church with Christ is forgiven, righteous, militant, triumphant, and safe and secure forever. Receive the mercy of God for you in Christ. You cannot stand before Him on your own. And rather than leave you in that place of death, that valley of Achor, He's made it a door of hope for all who will receive Him. Benefit from Christ. Drink from the fountain of God's salvation. And if you have, He's not angry with you anymore. There is zero chance you will be stoned to death.